Now, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And let's um, let's resume our study of uh, the Genesis chapter 3. I'll read to you only the first six verses of Genesis 3. Here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, um, this is a little four-part series on Genesis 3, and the first installment of this little series uh, occurred two weeks ago. We got interrupted by July the 4th and, and by the Lord's Supper last week. And so it seems to me that it would be wise to take just a couple of minutes and just review what we talked about two weeks ago when we introduced this, this, uh, this chapter. You may recall that we really didn't go beyond verse 1. Uh, and what I tr- sought to do in that sermon two weeks ago is to draw a comparison, some likenesses between this story in Genesis 3 and another story that's found later in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 11 12. The story about David and Bathsheba. And I, and I told you about David and Bathsheba, but everybody seems to know about David and Bathsheba. You know, he, um, he lusts after a woman, impregnates her, has her husband killed, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, in that story, you have a strong man, you have a weak man, and you have, uh, a forbidden, desirable piece of fruit. And so I said, that's the same kind of characters that you have over here. I also said two weeks ago that what you find in verse 1 is this sneer on the part of Satan. Has God really said that? And and I pointed out that that's the way that, that he operates. He never comes with uh, with proof. He never comes with uh, with evidences. He never comes with arguments. He comes with a sneer. He comes to say, <laughs> I mean, y- y- y'all don't believe that, do you? I mean, do you really believe that? That's how he deals with this, ladies and gentlemen, through a sneer, not through, not through, not through proof. And I said to you, as a result, it, it puts us to flight. That just the sneer, just the idea of being thought of as mm, unsophisticated. Drives us crazy. And so, well, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not sure we believe that. And, and I said to you two weeks ago that, that we've been suckered. We got sucker punched by the strong man. The strong man in this story is 
The strong man in the other story is David. The weak man was Uriah and the piece of fruit was, uh, was uh, Bathsheba. In this story, the strong man is Diabolos, Satan, Lucifer, whatever name you want to use to, to describe him. He's the strong man. And this morning we come to really the, the, um, the, the real centerpiece or the real central interest of this story. And it has to do with the dialogue that takes place, the conflict, the battle that takes place um, and, and is unfolding here between the strong man, Satan, and his weak opponent and her strong desire, Eve. She engages in this life and death struggle via a conversation that takes place that's recorded for you right here. And the outcome is um, has changed the face of history. Guys, um, at the very opening of this conversation, Eve should have recognized the moment that the, that the snakes started talking, she should have recognized that, that something was not right. Something was, was, was topsy-turvy. The, the animal kingdom, who had been named by her husband, um, was usurping to itself a, a prerogative which it did not rightfully possess. Sin always does that, ladies and gentlemen. Sin always overthrows the order of things. And when sin is present, something is just, it's just not right. Sin makes things not right. And she should have known that from the very opening. But instead, instead of turning away, she engages in a dialogue with a strong man for whom she is no match. And, and in her so doing, in engaging in this dialogue, right off the bat, maybe you notice this, she misquotes God. Do you remember two weeks ago, I showed you chapter 2 verse 17, where God says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But look at what she says in verse 3. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. God never said that. But she misquotes him from the, the, the opening statement out of her mouth is a misquote of what God had said. So she goes beyond what God had prohibited. Which, which seems to indicate, guys, that down deep, she agrees with Satan. She agrees that God has, um, has been too strict on her. That, um, it, 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 it seems to show that her love for God and her confidence and trust in Him has begun to waver. The topsy-turvy part for Eve is that now she seems to have forgotten all of the vast number of freedoms that she has in that garden. And she seems to be stuck on this one limitation that God has set. It, it, it's as if the, the, the one prohibition 
has gotten under her skin. And, and she is sufficiently riled to entertain the notion that God is mean. And with that, everything begins to unravel fast. Guys, I want you to, I want you to notice this. That the first sin that's really recorded here has nothing to do with the piece of fruit. The first sin that's on display in Genesis 3 is a sin against the goodness of God. That's where we all start. We all start by thinking that somehow that he has shortchanged me. Somehow I deserve more. I deserve better. What Eve should have said to Satan is, is something like this. She should have said, are you out of your mind? Look around me. Look, look around us. God made me. And he has put me in this garden paradise. He knows exactly what he's doing. My husband loves me and, and I love him. And we are intoxicated with, with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. Ladies and gentlemen, when you begin to question the goodness of God, you don't talk like that. You don't think like that. When there's a question in your mind as to the goodness of God towards you, you don't talk like that, ladies and gentlemen. Instead, you talk like Eve. She begins to flirt with the possibility that God is some kind of party pooper cosmic party pooper and that he has set some restrictions on her because because he just doesn't like her and once you get there ladies and gentlemen you're finished by the time we get to verse 4 Satan has already won round one. And from there, he advances. That is, Satan advances. He advances to an open denial of God's word. It's there in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now look, guys, remember 217? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. That's 2.17. But in 3.4, Satan says, you won't die. And he's quite emphatic about it. You surely, surely won't die. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if the first sin... The first recorded sin is against the goodness of God. 
than the first doctrine to be denied as recorded in the Bible is the doctrine of judgment, which is being repeated everywhere. The most recent of which is Rob Bell's smash hit book, Love Wins. And you know what's interesting to me, ladies and gentlemen, that every time you find some kind of effort on the part of some author to deny the judgment of God, they do so in the name of promoting the goodness of God. Why? Why God is not like that? Why? Why he's so much better than that? It's serpent theology, ladies and gentlemen. It's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. Because that's what sin does every time, ladies and gentlemen. It takes truth and sets it on its ear. And so we come out thinking, well, the normal family is between two members of the same sex. That's upside down, ladies and gentlemen. That's what sin does. It takes truth. And it inverts it. Come to verse 5, and Satan, he then goes on to state that not only will you not die, but that you... You, by your rebellion, will gain this new, special, divine insight. The prize for disobedience is not just knowledge. No, no. No, it's knowledge like God's. I mean, you will be like God. And isn't that what we all really want? Well, you know, I know that the the song goes that everybody wants to rule the world, but I don't particularly want to rule the world. I just want to rule mine. I don't care about y'alls. I just want to rule my world. I don't need anybody to tell me what I can or cannot do. And besides, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, what is crucial is not a piece of fruit. What's before you is outright rebellion at God. It's what you have taking place here in Genesis 3 is the de-godding of God so that I can be my own God. It's not simply the de-godding of God. It's the de-godding of God so that I can be God. It's Romans 1.25 played out in Genesis 3. The truth of God is exchanged for the lie. This is not just about breaking a rule, which is what the non-Christian world thinks sin is. It's the replacing of God with self. The lie is, ladies and gentlemen, that the lie is that self must be sovereign. 
There's no rule. There's no authority outside of myself. Which is what humanism has been trying to teach you for millennia. It's what, it's what the enlightenment was all about. That self is to be sovereign. And ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it. What's at stake here is not some rule about fruit. It's something deeper, something bigger, something sadder, something more sinister, something uglier, something more heinous. It's revolution. It's the de-godding of God. And replacing him with self. Ladies and gentlemen, in between verse 5 and verse 6, after Satan has spoken in verse 5, in between, right after Satan speaks in verse 5, before you get to verse 6, Eve must choose whom she will believe. And so must you. Satan offers you the same choice, ladies and gentlemen, that is offered to Eve. Who are you going to believe? Who is it that's telling you the truth? On what do you want to stake your life in your eternity? Who is sovereign? You've got to answer that question, ladies and gentlemen. Satan doesn't directly offer her the piece of fruit. He doesn't need to. He has already won. Once she questioned God's goodness, she's done. She's toast. She now believes that she is capable of evaluating all the facts and arriving at a wise, healthy, self-enhancing decision. Instead of appealing to the absolute character of God's word and his commands. She rests on her own intuition. She rests on her own ability to reason. Because she certainly doesn't want to be closed-minded. And she, ladies and gentlemen, is ruined. Because number one, she's questioning the goodness of God. Number two, 
she begins to doubt the judgment of God. And number three, she begins to think that she knows best about what her life should look like. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the formula for the ruination of a life. It is the degodding of God so that I can enthrone myself. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there are within the sound of my voice plenty of you who have made the exact same decision as Eve. I'm not sure about the goodness of God. I sure don't think these are going to judge my sin. And I am fully capable of analyzing the situations that I face with no sovereign above me and making decisions that will enhance my life. You are a dupe of the devil. I hope you'll read this one day. It's uh, it's another quote from Screwtape's Letters by C.S. Lewis. You know, remember, Screwtape is the devil and Wormwood is his nephew and Wormwood's up on earth and he's trying to Make sure that this certain Englishman is is ushered home to his father below. And, and I'm about to read you a quote, and it, it refers to the enemy. And the enemy, of course, is God. Satan's enemy is God. And so he's writing to his his nephew about the enemy. And the enemy is God. And listen, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Screwtape says to Wormwood, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks, why has he been forsaken? And still obeys! Do you hear what that meant? Satan says, my cause among men is never more shaken than in the life of an individual person who, who no longer desires but still intends to obey God and to do his will. And he looks around him and he sees no trace of God's evidence of his existence anywhere. And he wonders to himself, why has God forsaken me? And in the midst of all that... He still obeys. You know, guys, the best, the best illustration of that principle I found in a book that I read in the spring. Um, I, I try to read 
all kinds of stuff. I'm, I, I try to read classics a couple of times a year, and one of the classics that I read this year is Jane Eyre. You know about the Bronte sisters, don't you? The Brontes, the, um, you know, there was Elizabeth and there was Charlotte and there was one more and there was a brother, a brother who was an artist. He ultimately killed himself. But, um, I think it was Charlotte that wrote Wuthering Heights and, and, and Elizabeth that wrote, uh, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre, they turned into a movie. It was just in Memphis, um, oh, a couple of months ago. I wanted to go see it, but it was only on one theater, one, one screen and it was downtown. So I, I never got to see it, but I read the book. I had not seen the movie, but I read the book. If I, if you haven't read the book, I'm about to ruin it for you, but, um, um, Jane Eyre is, is, a, is an orphan. Her mother and father were both dead and she was being raised by an aunt, um, her, the, whose husband, which was her uncle, was also dead, but the uncle was the brother of her father. But he was dead. And so she was being raised by this aunt who mistreated her badly, very badly. And she had two children. The aunt did. And the two children also treated Jane Eyre very badly. And so they finally sent Jane Eyre off to boarding school. Uh, there she began to flourish. Uh, she met some friends. She was treated decently. And, and she grew up into a young woman and was educated. And she left the boarding school as a teacher. She was hired by Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester, who was the um, the landed aristocracy of his particular town, he was a, a handsome, dashing man that all the city looked to as a leader, somebody that everybody liked. And, and she was hired by Mr. Rochester to come into his home and to um, to teach his, his children. Of course, um, he um, she immediately falls in love with uh, Mr. Rochester, but cannot breathe a word of that to anyone. And uh, Mr. Rochester, uh, very frankly, was was really uh, paired off with a young socialite there in town who was a young, beautiful, dashing young woman who was a debutante of the city whose name was Blanche Ingram. And so at all the big soirees that they would have in the, in the uh, Rochester estate, Blanche would come sweeping in in all of her beauty and all of her wealth and all of her gowns and would take the breath away of all those who were in attendance. And of course, she came in on the arm of Mr. Rochester. Jane Eyre could only watch and serve dainties while Mr. Rochester partied with his friends with Blanche. Well, as as the story would have it, of course, um, Mr. Rochester discovers how flimsy and how shallow is Blanche. And he falls in love with Jane Eyre. And this discovery just overwhelms Jane Eyre. And he finally asks Jane Eyre to marry him. And Jane Eyre is just overtaken with the idea of being married to Mr. Rochester. And so finally the day comes and they go to the church and they, uh, the, the ceremony has begun. And in the middle of the, of the ceremony, somebody breaks into the back room and says, This man cannot marry this woman. This man is already married. He's married to my sister. Turns out that happened to be true. There was a there was an insane woman that lived in the attic of the Rochester estate. Uh, Jane didn't know much about her. She had tried to burn down the house on one occasion and tried to murder Mr. Rochester on another. She was out of her mind. She was crazy. She was she was insane. He had she had no idea that that woman was married to Mr. Rochester. And so the wedding breaks off and 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 Jane Eyre runs out the back of the church in her gown. She runs home and she is overtaken with grief that all of her dreams of her life have been shattered. She is devastated. Mr. Rochester follows her home and begs her. She begs her, please, please don't confine me to misery for the rest of my life. The woman who lives in the attic is a maniac. 
She's lost her mind. Please come away with me. Please, please marry me. Jane Eyre refuses. Mr. Rochester says, then you condemn me to have a wretched and wicked life for the rest of my life. She still refuses. She still refuses to marry Mr. Rochester. And then, in a stroke of absolute genius in my mind, the author of the book gives you a, an insight into what's going on inside of Jane Eyre's mind and heart. And I'm going to read this to you. This is what Jane Eyre is thinking and feeling in the midst of this, facing this enormous temptation. And while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with the crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you? Who will be injured by what you do? Still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God and sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this. When body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they. Inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them. What would be their worth? They have a worth. So I have always believed, and I cannot believe it now. It is, be And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There, I plant my foot. And I did. In the midst of the temptation, ladies and gentlemen. To whom do you listen? Where do you turn? Are the principles and the laws of God enough for you? Or will you be led by feelings that are out of control? Laws and principles are not for times when I feel no temptation. 
prepare for times like this. When everything in me rises up inside of me and tells me to disobey. Preconceived opinions and foregone determinations are all I have to stand by in this hour. And there I will stand. So Eve ate. She was unwilling to obey God. Merely because he had commanded it. But ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this. The revolt started back when she questioned the goodness of God. That's where it always starts, ladies and gentlemen. It always starts when we begin to doubt whether God is good. There is a scene in um, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that is quoted often. And, um, of course, the hero in the Chronicles of Narnia is Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure in, in that, that, that series. And in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, it, um, uh, Lucy and Susan are having lunch or having a meal with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And in the course of the conversation, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the two girls that Aslan is a lion. And Susan says, a lion? A lion? I didn't know that he was a lion. Why? Why is he, is he safe? Mr. Bieber says, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? But he is good. Do you believe that? Ladies and gentlemen, if you question the goodness of God, let me say this to you. His goodness is on display in the life and death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ would take my place and pay the debt of my sin. is unparalleled goodness. If you miss that, you miss it all. Our Father, would you use your word to remind us of the of the stakes of um, standing 
standing on your word and believing what you've said, would you remind us, O oh God, that lives are ruined, eternities are lost, because people question your goodness, doubt your judgment, and then conclude that they are smart enough to make decisions without you. Eve did that. We've done that. Many of us. And yet by your sovereign grace, you have caused us to see that there is a remedy for our sin in Christ Jesus. Oh God, how we bless you this morning. That you have taken rebels like us and turned us into sons and daughters. But Heavenly Father, there are those who are here this minute who still think that the throne should be occupied by them. And I pray that you will cause them to see the path that they are on which will lead them to ruin. Draw them to the precious bleeding side of the one whose life and death is consummate goodness and provides forgiveness for somebody as wicked as I am. Thank you for the privilege that we have here at Gracie Van of announcing and proclaiming the grand and glorious goodness of the thrice holy God. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.